If you turn in your Bible to Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7. We have a lot to read this morning. We're going to attempt to finish the chapter this morning. We want to begin in verse 7. It says, What shall we say then? That the law is sin? By no means. If it had not been for the law, I would not have known sin. For I... For I would not have known what it is to covet if the law had not said you shall not covet. But sin, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, produced in me all kinds of covetousness. For apart from the law, sin lies dead. I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin came alive and I died. The very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me. For sin... Seizing an opportunity through the commandment deceived me, and through it killed me. So the law is holy, and the commandment is holy, and righteous, and good. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good, in order that sin might be shown to be sin, and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. For we know that the law is spiritual, But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not, for I I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it's good. So it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. For I delight in the law of God. In my inner being, but I see in my members another law, waging war against the law of my mind, and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but with my flesh I serve the law of sin. What we want to look and to understand today from this passage of Scripture, what Paul is being trying to convince us is that the law is dead. We are not under the law, but that we understand when we say the law is dead, that we are dead to it. We are under grace. And what he has to do is he has to give a vindication, first of all, of the law, because some people were saying, well, the law, therefore is sinful now if we go through the earlier passages of romans we understand about the law the law was given by god since it came from god the law basically reflects his character and his attributes but what paul was anticipating was an argument that was going to say the law is sin the law is absolutely sin and that is an affront to the lord so what paul says in verse 7 He says, the law is sin, but 
and it, uh, the, the law uh, is the law sin? He says, by no means. Yet if it had not been for the law, I would not have known what sin was. So what Paul was saying, the law declares what sin is. It defines it. And he uses the illustration in verse 8 that he, is, uh, he uses the commandment not to covet to illustrate that point. But he says, here's the deal. Sin seized an opportunity through the commandment. And what it did was produce in me all kinds of covetousness. What we need to understand, folks, as Christians, even though you are blood-bought people by Jesus Christ, never underestimate the power of sin that still resides in us. Even though we are dead to sin, and it has no power to have dominion over us anymore. We still have those remnants of sin within us, and we should never underestimate the power of that sin because any Christian can do anything at any given time that can be utterly sinful. We fall into it, as we say, but we really don't fall into it. We really just make the choice to do it. Folks, it's powerful. It will, it will entice us, as he says, seizing an opportunity through the commandment, sin will grab hold of us. We had an old evangelist in the uh, Christian era, one that started his work in Pasadena, uh, pulpit in the shadows. His name was Freddie Gage. Freddie used to say this. He would preach on sin, and he'd always get this with the crowd. He would say, sin thrills and then it kills. It fascinates, and then it assassinates. If you want to play, you got to pay. That was a big thing with him. But the point is, it's true. Sin thrills, doesn't it? And what does sin do? The wages of sin is what? Death. It fascinates, and then it assassinates. If you want to play, you got to pay. So the gist of this whole chapter or part of this first part of the chapter is like this. Think about it this way. Paul is anticipating a possible argument rising. And so just think in your mind that Jewish man stands up in the synagogue and he has that letter that was written to the Romans and he says, Brother Paul, because you've said we're not under the law anymore and because you've said that the law has been laid aside and we're not justified by it and in fact, you just said our passions are, have been aroused by the law. You've also said that the law leads to our death. And so if we put the two to two together, the law must be the culprit, the law that has been laid aside and has aroused our passions. The law must be sin. Is that correct, Brother Paul? And Paul is basically saying this, God forbid. No, you dear sir have miss the meaning of my argument. It is by the law that I know the power of sin. I know its character. I know its deceit. I know its deadliness. The law taught me what it is to be covetous. Beforehand, my normal passions to do what I believe to be right in my, in my own eyes, that was just me acting normally under the power of sin. But when the law was given to me and told me not to covet, According to its nature and its desire, sin sprang up and it seized the moment. It seized the day. Carpe diem, it said. And then I took that opportunity. I kicked my sin into high gear and I wanted to covet. 
Also, my friend, understand this. Those who are not believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, those who are in the flesh, don't understand the depths and the dangers of sin. They're just acting normally. It is true that each man and woman, boy and girl, knows right from wrong because God has written these things on their heart, but that doesn't mean they understand the seriousness of sin and how it separates us from God and leads to spiritual death. The law leads us to understand what sin is. So that is what Paul is saying in these first parts of this chapter in verse 7. He is saying this leads us to understand what sin is. And folks, just want to let you know, it is this preparation of the preaching of the law to the heart that is absolutely absent today in many pulpits. It's been substituted for something more positive and more pragmatic. And in fact, it's interesting enough, we used to call it that preaching back then that Freddie Gage used to do, that was hellfire and damnation. That doesn't reach anybody. Really? But you know that Spurgeon and the Puritans and other folks, they used to use the law first to prepare the heart to receive the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. It was the teachings of Charles Finney. Here's the skinny on Finney. Let me let you know. In the 1800s, he introduced something called the new methods. The new methods. In other words, he found the preaching to be boring. Literally in his autobiography, he tells us the preaching of the word of God, which I heard did not make sense to me since he was trained as a lawyer. So he started interpreting the scriptures just like he would do in his law practice and even states that he did so. And he began to see that man does not need this preaching on sin like this. But what he needs is help to be able to move him to make a decision for Christ. And so he came up with new methods. He was the very first one that had altar calls in his services, his revival services. He also had what they called the anxious bench. He was one who would have you say, are you anxious about your salvation? Are you anxious here? Are you anxious? Here's a bench right down here. Come down here. Stand down here. Kneel down here. And we will get to you after the service. He was one that said, just come on. Come on. And he developed all these things because he said, all man has to do is have a little help in order to come. And there are methods to get him to come. And so what happened, basically this has evolved over the years because it produced what? Results. And we could see those tangible results and therefore we believed that God was moving in our midst. Now, folks, I want you to know that's exactly how I was taught. It was to manipulate decisions by the use of the right gestures at the right time and saying the right thing at the right time to get people to come and to have results. It was interesting. I had an older preacher take me and say, hey, Andy, how, how do you lead an invitation? And I told him, and he said, no, 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 you're doing it all wrong. This is what you got to do. When you step down and you give the invitation, when you say, folks, I want every head bowed, every eye closed. Do y'all remember some of that? Every head bowed, every eye closed. 
if right now you don't know whether you're going to heaven or you're not going to heaven, you know, uh, you're not going to heaven, please, if you need Jesus, as you say, would you, would you slip that hand up right now? Slip that hand up. And he would say, slip that hand up. And he said, even if, even if you don't see any hands, you've got to get the crowd moving. You've got to get it moving. Yes, yes. Yes, I see that one. Yes, brother. Yes. Yes, I see that one. Now, all those who did your hands and raised your hands, would you stand up where you are? And if they won't stand up, you know, maybe then when you call them, you do things like this. You just can't sit up there at the front, he told me. You just can't sit there like this with your hands behind your back or your hands in your pocket waiting to move. You need to take a posture like this, like you're receiving. Now, literally, I'm telling you the truth, folks. This is what this guy taught me. Like you're receiving them. Because when they see it, they're seeing your arms are open wide. And they will come down. Or you can do this. If they, they raise their hands over here, you can kind of look over to see where they are and go. Would you come? And then we say, would you come? Would you come? Piano player, play it one more time. Let's sing one more time, one more verse, just as I am. Would you come? Would you come? Folks, if you know somebody, you're looking right now and you see they're under conviction, would you go up to their side? Would you come up to them? Brother Philip, I know you're in conviction. Why don't you come on? Come on, brother. Just surrender. Surrender it all. Come on with me. Come with me now. (laughs) And bring them up. And there they're going to make a decision for God. And we say, they've come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. And everybody would what? Hoot and holler, you know, and say, welcome to the family of God. And we knew nothing whether or not God changed the heart or not. But we had decisions. And we were known for the denomination that had buildings, bucks, and bodies. And that's what it was all about. These are kind of things that we would do to get a decision for the Lord. And then it morphed into God has a wonderful plan for your life. God has a wonderful plan for your life. All you got to do is repent and believe because you're a sinner. This is all you got to do. All you got to do is repent and believe and you will enter into the kingdom of God. But one of the things we didn't explain was repent from what? Repent from what? Everybody defines sin in their own way. What was sin? While we were giving them, hey, you've fallen short of the glory of God because of your sins, and Jesus Christ died for your sins. They didn't know what the sin was because they got to define it. The point is, what teaches us, what teaches us what sin is? It's the law. It's what Paul's saying. It's the law. In Galatians, he says, it's the law that is the tutor that leads us to Christ. We have to know that. I love the illustration from Ray Comfort's book called Hell's Best Kept Secret. He said, what if we had applied those same ta- tactics to the Old Testament? Let me, let me share the story with you. King David sinned. So Nathan's heart, the prophet, Nathan's heart went out to King David. The king had made some bad decisions. Even though he wasn't actually aware of it, he had messed up and God wanted to help him. David had had an affair, and then he tried to remedy the problem himself. What had happened was unfortunate, and the prophet saw his job as one who was there to help bring some sort of healing to the situation. He began his message to King David by gently explaining to the king the good news that there was something missing from his life. 
That missing piece was real and lasting peace. Or as someone put it, there was a God-shaped vacuum in his heart. It was good news that God had a wonderful plan for the king's life and that he wanted him to experience that plan. The prophet was steering towards a moment of decision. Would the king respond to this incredible offer that God had made him or would he reject it? So to help the king, Nathan psychologically prepared him by telling him what he was going to do. He had said that in a few moments, he would want him to respond by coming forward. And the prophet had learned that this would help the king move closer to the decision he needed to make. To further help, uh, Nathan had David and the guards who stood around his throne close their eyes. This would, would help to make sure that the king felt a little less self-conscious about his decision when he did come forward. And David, like King Saul, had a personal musician close by. So as Nathan continued to speak, he nodded to the musician to begin to play some appropriate music on the harp. And even though the song was very moving, there was no movement from David, so Nathan nodded to the skilled performer to play the tune again, and then again, as he continued to plead with David, please respond, O king. And to help him further, the prophet let him know that if he did come, he had prearranged with one of the king's guards to come forward with him to stand alongside him in support. And still the king didn't make a move. So Nathan gently reminded him that no one was watching, and that every eye was closed. And again, he spoke of the incredible offer God had made to him. Suddenly, it seemed that David was convinced about this new life that could be his if he would just respond. He began to move slowly forward. And as he did, one of the closest guards gently took him by the arm and walked with him. It was a very emotional moment. It was so touching that the rest of the guards couldn't contain themselves. They burst into joyful applause. David smiled slightly at their gesture of support. The guard smiled, so did Nathan. There was great joy because this was what it was all about. Not quite, said Comfort. God hadn't instructed Nathan to talk to the king about a God-shaped vacuum in his heart or to talk about real peace or improving his life. He was there to reprove a devious murder, murderer who had despised God's commandment, committed adultery with another man's wife. And as a married man, the king had burned in lust after another woman. And knowing that she herself was married, he had illicit sexual intercourse with her, which caused her to become pregnant with his child. And then as if that wasn't bad enough, he had her loving and faithful husband murdered and married her himself. He had carefully covered his terrible sin, but far as God was concerned, the, his wicked hands were dripping with innocent blood. And what an awful betrayal it would have been if the prophet had reduced the king's horrible crimes against a holy God to insignificance by talking to him about a new and better life that could be his. And folks, that's why it is of my personal opinion that over the years, over the years of this kind of Invitations, these kind of things been given out, this kind of gospel been given out is the reason why our children fall away from the faith once they go to universities. Children that are raised in churches. Folks, I looked up a new statistics. Did you know that 88% of evangelical kids, 18 through 22, cease to go to church 
and fall away, quote-unquote, from the faith once they reach the university. Now, here's a point. What they did was make a decision. They had no conversion. They had no conversion. The reason being, folks, is that Jesus himself holds them in the palm of their hand. How can they walk away from that? When their heart changes, their affections changes, those things happen as a Christian, a true Christian, will follow and continue to follow the Lord Jesus Christ. He will love the things Christ loves, hates the things Christ hates. He will have a new heart and a new mind. And folks, we understand this, that if we do that kind of evangelism, we're going to get that kind of results. But if we do the law, if we basically state the law so that we understand sin, then people will understand what sin is. How does this apply to us at all? How does it apply to it? Well, parents, let me speak to you just a moment, okay? Use the law at your house with your children. Use the law to lead to the knowledge of sin. How does that happen? What do you do? Folks, oftentimes, I know this. I've been a parent. I've got grandkids now. I understand these little uh, kids, my kids, my grandkids. They are not little angels. They're not. They're little devils. Why? Because they're sinners. Because they're sinners. They were born into sin. We have to understand that and know that. It's just not enough to say, no, 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 stop doing that. You do not hit your brother. Or no, 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 you just lied to me. You know it's not good to lie. Go sit over there in the corner. What a great opportunity that when you do catch one of your kids in a lie to explain the law of God to them. What does the law of God say? Sit them down and say, you know, there's an answer to what you did in the Bible. The scripture says, thou shall not lie. When you lie, is that a sin against a holy God who is the God of truth? You literally ask your children that. You get them on a plane to where they're understanding what is sin. When they back talk you, you sit them down and you say to them, after you pick them up, uh, then you say to them, did you know that the scripture says you shall honor your father and mother? Can you explain to me exactly what you did and how it violated that law of God? You see, what you're doing is that you're talking about the law and the law, according to Galatians, according to the Apostle Paul, the law is a tutor to lead us to Christ. It reveals sin and it reveals the sinfulness of sin. Explain those things to your kids. Sometimes you have to explain those things to your adult kids. And you have to use the law constantly. Let the law do its work, folks. That's what you need to do in explaining these things. So the law, we understand, Paul says and tells us it was sin, verse 8, but sin seizing an opportunity. The law is good and holy. That's what he says. So he vindicates the law. In fact, what we see in verse 9, notice what he says. He says, I was once alive apart from the law, but when the commandment came, sin became alive and I died. What does that mean? 
think about it. Once I was alive apart from the law. He didn't have any knowledge of the law. He didn't understand the law. So therefore, he just acted naturally out of his own human sinful nature and did what was normal. But when the law came, when the commandment came, in other words, when he understood the commandment by reading the commandment and seeing the commandment, then he realized his actions did not line up up with the law of God. Therefore, sin comes and he's got a knowledge now of sin. Came alive for him and he died. He realized it produced death. And in fact, verse 10, the very commandment that promised life proved to be death to me for sin seizing the opportunity. So what Paul was saying, here's the vindication of the law. The law did its work. The law is not sin. God forbid. Sin is sin. And he goes on. Notice what he says. Verse 13. Did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. So what we learn from this is this, the law is not held responsible for our failures. It is sin-producing death. And the law shows us our sin, but it also, according to verse 13, shows how sinful sin really is. In the 17th century, there was a pastor by the name of Ralph Venning, and he wrote a book called The Plague of Plagues four years after the Great Plague of London that occurred in 1665. It killed 100,000 people. It was almost a quarter, 25% of the London population in 18 months. The name was changed to the sinfulness of sin in later years based upon the passage today. And this is what he was saying in his book. He's saying the Bible views sin as high treason against God. Sin tries to un-God, God. The Bible says sin is enmity against God and it manifests itself in men with acts of hostility causing men, it says in the Bible, to walk contrary to God, rebel against him, rise up against him as an enemy, strive and contends against God, despises God. He goes on to say, sin displeases and dishonors God as well as debases and destroys man. It's contrary to the nature of God, contrary to all the names and attributes of God. It denies his all-sufficiency, challenges the justice of God, disowns his omniscience, despises the riches of God's goodness, turns his grace into licentiousness, and in short, it attempts to dethrone God, then confesses its criminal acts with a sense of pride. You think he was writing to the year 2021, right? Think about this. In short, it attempts to dethrone God, which is exactly what we're seeing in our culture today. Folks, if you don't understand what we've been talking about over the last few weeks about critical race theory, intersectionality, the BLM movement, they want to overthrow Christianity and the family unit. They want to dethrone God in everything. And then they confess their sin, their criminal acts with a sense of pride. The same thing occurring in 1669 when he wrote The Sinfulness of Sin still occurs today. Why? 
Sin is what? Sin, no matter what age. Sin is the culprit. But as we move forward, I believe that the next section that we have from 14 to 25 basically states the vexation from the law that every Christian believer will experience. Some people say that chapter 7 was Paul saying, this is who I was before I was a Christian. And now in chapter 8, now that I am a Christian, this is there's no condemnation in Christ. I don't believe that. I believe that he is continuing this line of defense, defending verse 1 when he says uh, from verse 1 on to verse 7, defending this, vindicating the law, and then coming and saying, here's a personal illustration about what the law does. It vexates you. In other words, it basically aggravates you just about on every point. Notice what he is trying to say. Verse 14, for we know that the law is spiritual. I'm under flesh, sold under sin, for I do not understand my own actions. Are you there? Dear folks, you know Christ as your personal Lord and Savior. You know that you're to walk in the Spirit, and yet you know that you can fly off the handle at any given time. You know that you can have thoughts that are just unbelievably uh, sinful. And you're going, where did that come from? Help me. This is what Paul is trying to say. He is saying this law is going to continue uh, to vexate you, to aggravate you, and you're going to see what it's going to do. He said, the things I don't want to do, I do. The things I want to do, I don't do. Goodness gracious, what in the world is going on? And in verse 21, he says, what I want to do right Evil is close at hand. And folks, we need to remember that. There used to be a movie called Death Takes a Holiday. I don't know if you ever remember that movie. Death Takes a Holiday. Basically, that death just took, took a day off. So nobody died during the whole time over the whole world because he took a holiday. Let me just state to you, sin never takes a holiday. It doesn't even take a moment. Goodness gracious, did we get a reprieve? This is what Paul is saying. The very thing that I don't want to do, I do. Is that, oh my goodness, he's trying to get them to see I am understanding there's something in me that continues to war against the Spirit and it continues to aggravate my soul. But notice what he says. Verse 25, he goes through this whole thing. He says, what a wretched man I am, just like he tells us, and we believe ourselves, oh my goodness, we are so wretched. Who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, here's victory, victory over the law. Notice verse 25. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So then I myself serve the law of God with my mind, but my flesh, I serve the law of sin. So what is he saying? He's saying, guys, we are dead to sin. We are alive to Christ. This is the whole flow of this argument from chapter 6 all the way through chapter 7. We are dead to sin. It does not have power over us. I'm giving you this illustration. I am showing you, says Paul, what every believer goes through as a Christian. You're going to do things you don't want to do. You're going to 
just get exasperated with all the stuff that comes at you. Who in the world can save us from this? It's Jesus Christ, and he has saved us from this. That's why in verse 1 of chapter 8, he writes, Therefore, there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Isn't that the good news that we need to hear as Christians? When you're plagued, when you're vexed, when you're down, when you're beating yourself up, when you are about to pull your hair out of, why do I keep on doing what I keep on not wanting to do? Go back to what Paul just did and said, thanks be to God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Thank you, Lord Jesus, that I'm dead to sin and I'm alive to you. Then began to present your body as instruments of righteousness for him. That's how we continue to combat sin because it's always present, never takes a moment off. It will be there. So if you're walking in defeat and beating yourself up constantly and consistently, you may not be going back to the victory that's already been won for you in the Lord Jesus Christ. Do that. Get back to that point of proclaiming the victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. That's how you fight this thing called sin. It's dead. Reckon it to be so. It will not have power over you. Don't let it. Don't let it. Don't do that. One of my favorite stories, and I'll conclude with this. I've shared this with you before. I have a, a warped sense of humor, folks. I really do. I just, you know, laugh at things that kind of are slapstick and goofy and everything else. One of the things in, we would do a stress in the ministry conference when I was in the counseling ministry at Sagemont where we would take 10 couples that were ministers from all across the country. We did this six times a year where we took those couples and we brought them into Houston, put them up in a hotel, got a room, and we would do basically a group counseling with ministers in trouble. And it could be from anything, from depression, from anger issues, from moral failings, from financial failings, from all kinds of stuff. They're marriages are falling apart and we would work with them we work with over 600 of them during the three-year period it was an amazing ministry that we had with them and to them and one of the hardest people to minister to to get to break through to understand that they're walking in sin is preachers okay it is preachers it's tough there's an element of pride there that we had to break through so we'd keep them up Every night, we'd have dinner after we went through a whole day of kind of seminars and teaching and questioning. We'd have dinner, come back, and from about 7.30 to 2.30 in the morning, we'd have group counseling sessions. And we'd find out that the only time when we got them real tired would they really be, really be willing to be able to confess a sin, but also to be able to say, that sin has been declared dormant in your life through victory in our Lord Jesus Christ. But we played something for them from Mad TV. I don't know if you've ever seen Mad TV. But they had Bob Newhart from the Newhart Show. Some of your older folks remember this. He played a psychologist at one time. So he was reprising his role. And a lady comes into his office. He comes and sits down in front of her. And 
he says, can I help you? What should I do? And she says, uh, you know, what, why are you here? She says to him, I've got this tremendous fear that I am going to be locked in a box. And she's kind of crying and whimpering, and he goes, okay, I've got two words. Stop it. And she says, what? He says, stop it. Okay, we're finished. Thank you. So and she goes, wait, 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 wait. You haven't even helped me. Didn't you understand me? I have these dreams. I have this. I have that. And it's, I've got this great fear of stopping in the box. He says, two words. Being locked in a box. Stop it. Stop it. And he continues to go, stop it. Stop it. And it really gets comical and funny. And finally, he gets to the point where she keeps repeating himself. And then finally, he says to her in a very loud voice, this, eight words. Stop it or I'm going to lock you in a box. Now, the point of the story is this. Things vexing you things you just beat yourself all the, up all the time and defeating you know being defeated because evil lies close at hand and you just I, I don't know what I'm going to do you ready stop it stop it claim the victory that you already have in our Lord Jesus Christ what did Paul say thanks be to God for the victory that's in our Lord Jesus Christ the victory we've won we've won it's not that we're going to win, as some people say. I've read the last chapter of the Bible, and we win. No, we've already won. Jesus has dominion over that. So stop it, please, and stand on what Jesus Christ has done for you. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for the blessings of the Word of God. Thank you for the victory that you give us through our Lord Jesus Christ, where we can walk in that. Lord, I pray for this congregation as they go through the week. I pray, O oh Lord, that as those troubling thoughts, those activities that spring up, and Lord, they just almost automatically sin, I pray, Lord, that they would fall back upon the declared victory of, of you and what you did on the cross to defeat the power of sin in our lives. I pray that we would walk in that union with Christ so closely, Lord, that we would call upon you continually when we're being attacked and when we have onslaught from the enemy and from our own selves. Lord, I pray that we'd stand upon the blood of Jesus Christ that was spilt for us to destroy the power of the devil and the power of sin. So, Lord, thank you that we can walk from the victory that you've already given us. Lord, I pray that blessing upon them that they would, and Lord, that they would see that in you there is no condemnation. Thank you, Lord Jesus, again for the day of worship. We pray that it was pleasing to you. In Jesus' name I pray.